Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Welcome to Canaan Bound Podcast, a podcast designed to offer the Christian rest during life's journey. Canaan Bound Podcast features devotional segments by pastors serving in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, along with church history, mission news, and music by various Christian artists who support our teaching. My name is Philip Wells, and this is episode 108. We begin today with a message from 1 Peter. Shared by Pastor Mark Falk. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18 Always strangers. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. NIV 1984 What a fine line Christians must walk. We are to strive to be at peace with all people, as much as it depends on us. But we are always counter-cultural. In Africa, Christians cannot worship the spirits of fellow tribesmen, the ones they fear. In India and Japan, we Christians cannot offer sacrifices to dead ancestors. In Muslim lands, we cannot bow to Allah. And in America... In a land that exalts self, that preaches the gospel, that you can be anything you want to be, where the most important questions are, what do you want, what do you feel, what do you think, we are encouraged to live as strangers. We do not believe our bodies, C.F. Marlowe Thomas, belong to ourselves. We do not believe ourselves belong to ourselves. As Paul says, we were bought with a price. So we must listen to every message from the world with careful ears. When these messages are about car care or nutrition or exercise, we may use the wisdom they offer with sanctified common sense. When the world talks about spirituality, apart from Christ, we must firmly demur. When the world thinks that all truths are equally valid, that all roads lead to heaven, that all gods or no God at all is just a matter of personal choice, we have no choice but to disagree. Sometimes our thoughts are disagreeable, and not just to enemies or strangers on the street. They may be disagreeable to friends, and to family members, to those who are uh, more open-minded, quote-unquote, even, uh, even uh, disagreeable to those closest to us by blood and common interests. And this is the real pain of the cross that we must bear as we follow the way of the cross. We want nothing more at our human best than to live in love and be loved and liked. But we are often, perhaps we should say always, strangers. And we must be. It's so much harder than it used to be, we may think, as we imagine simpler times for Christians. But look at these words of Peter. The empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. How did that thought sit? with friends and family. Not very well, we may well imagine. But also notice these words. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty life of unbelief 
or false belief. If our flesh squeals in pain for a cross that is too heavy for me to bear, quote unquote, let us see what we have been given in exchange for a life that is in harmony with the world. We have been redeemed. We were once sold as slaves of sin. The end of that life is the harsh judgment of Jesus on the last day. Depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire. And since we have already admitted, we have, haven't we, that holiness is something to strive after, but not to claim as our own in the present, we cannot redeem ourselves. It is common for athletes and others to speak of redeeming themselves for a mistake uh, with the next play, or perhaps the next game, or the next season. Once we have sinned and become imperfect, that option is gone. We cannot redeem ourselves. That opportunity is lost forever. But we have a Redeemer. He is the one who has paid the price of our sin with blood. His sacrifice is real and sufficient, and it is done. You can hear shades of Luther in the second article in these words of Peter. Jesus redeemed us not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and innocent sufferings and death. If the shoe of strangeness in this world and among those you love sometimes pinches a bit too tight, remember what you were, lost and condemned sinners. Remember what you are, redeemed, restored, and forgiven. Remember where you are going. Remember the price paid. Remember the Redeemer who paid it. Rejoice and ask God to help you live the life He has called you to live, always a stranger in this world. Next up, we have a song by Chris Dresbach from his album, Hymns for Him. Lord Jesus, you have now prepared. Lord Jesus Christ, you have prepared this feast for our salvation. It is your body and your blood and at your invitation as weary souls with sin oppressed we come to you for needed rest for comfort and for pardon yet Savior you confined to any habitation but you are present everywhere and with your congregation firm as a rock this truth shall stand unmoved by word believing that your true body and your blood our lips are here receiving this word remains 
reason cannot understand Yet faith this truth embraces Your body, Lord, is everywhere At once in many places I leave to you how this can be Your word is still enough for me I trust its truth unfailing Lord, I believe what you have said Help me when doubts assail me Remember that I am but dust And let my faith not fail me Your supper in this veil of tears Refreshes me and stills my fears And is my priceless treasure Next up, we have Bible Truths, question number 11. Bible Truths, question number 11. Why close communion? Why do we practice close communion? The Lord's Supper is an amazing miracle of our God. In a miraculous way, God tells us that in his supper, we've received Jesus' true body and blood, together with bread and wine, for the forgiveness of our sins. There are really two communions that take place at the Lord's Supper, a vertical one with God and a horizontal one with fellow partakers. In a wonderful way, God comes to each communicant with his gifts of forgiveness of sins, new life, and salvation. God also tells us, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one loaf. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17. God tells us that when people commune in a congregation, they are confessing that the full truths of God's word are taught in that congregation, and they are also saying we are one in faith. Once someone has been instructed in the teachings of a congregation, he or she is able to publicly confess this conviction of faith which is unseen in his or her heart. Therefore, by joining a congregation, a person publicly says, all the teachings of this congregation are accurate according to God's word. And, I agree with the teachings of this congregation, and am one in faith with all its members. Additionally, God warns that if someone takes the Lord's Supper not knowing what he or she is doing, the person is sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27. Out of love for God and for people's souls, the Lord's Supper is not to be offered in a way that would make it easy for someone who doesn't understand it properly to sin. In practicing close communion, it is not a person's faith that is being judged, it is that person's confession of faith. Close communion is a way for Christians to ensure the Lord's Supper remains something awesome and precious, not ordinary and blahs. God's word on close communion from the NIV, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake the one loaf. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. 2 John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. And now we join Pastor Timothy Smith with God's Word for You. God's Word for You, Job 36, now reading the first 15 verses. And before we do, let's remember, five men have pondered Job's suffering and wondered why it has taken place. Eliphaz, from the land of wisdom, probed the golden depths of wisdom. Bildad, a relative we think of Abraham's, consulted the precious traditions of his people. Zophar, a cynic, didn't add to these arguments but used stronger language and sarcasm with words as tough as bronze. We found Elihu to be a younger man who sometimes profound and ironclad wisdom was mixed with the clay of chattering nonsense. And then there was Job himself. Job stood the test of all of his friends' arguments and stood firmly on his conviction that he was innocent. Chapters 36 and 37 are a transition to the last part of the book. There is no more contemplation on the reason for Job's suffering. Now the author of the great poem uses the words of Elihu to prepare us for the approach of the oncoming thunderstorm. The question that no man can answer beforehand is the one that faces all five of these men now. Are you prepared for the awesome power of our amazing God? Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. Well, here Elihu is a lot closer to a Christian's view about God's justice but he says a little more, he speaks rather a little bit more confidently than we would like him to when he says things like, I have perfect knowledge and listen to me because I'm among you and so forth. Verses 5 to 7. God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. Here, Elihu seems to mean this, that just because God is almighty doesn't mean he doesn't consider us or care for us. He keeps his eye on us and he provides for our needs. But notice that Elihu continues to think that God will uphold everyone who is downtrodden in this lifetime. And there he's missing the point. Verses 8 and following. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, He tells them what they have done and that they have sinned arrogantly. 
He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. I know someone who worked for the justice system who was convinced that jails and prisons only had one purpose, and that was to reform the convicted. I think that a judge today would disagree that in many cases, jails and prisons have at least two other purposes. First, to punish wrongdoing. And second, and this is maybe the most important one, to contain those who pose a threat. In these verses, Elihu describes God's chastening in terms of reform. God wants us to repent of sin and to turn our lives and our hearts back to him. But there is still the threat of punishment. Without repentance, without trusting in God for forgiveness and grace, there is only punishment in the end, and that punishment would be eternal. As Isaiah says in the very last verses of his book, their uh, worm uh, never, uh, or rather, uh, the the fire never ends and their worm uh, uh, never fails. Verses 13 and following. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. The comment to Job here is this, the godless resent God's chastisement. So Job, if you resent this, you must secretly be godless. Um, this reminds me of the, of the, the story um, that's actually a, a play. I think it's by Aeschylus, or it might be Aristophanes, but it's called Prometheus Bound, where Prometheus, the firebringer, is, uh, is bound in chains by Zeus and actually by a servant of Zeus. And he does nothing throughout the whole play but curse Zeus and curse everybody else in the world. Um, and that's just how the thing sort of plays out is with his, uh, his bitter resentment of what's happened to him because of his rebellion. And that's a little bit what Elihu is talking about uh, here when he talks about those who are punished by God who don't learn from that and just bitterly rebuke God for what he's done. Now, verse 14, um, let me read it again because it's not easy to understand. It says, They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. Now, the second half of that verse says literally in Hebrew, Their life is with male shrine prostitutes. The King James Version said their life is unclean. And maybe that's the idea behind the verse. The, The whole passage together gives a sense of tragedy and shame And the parallelism contrasts an earthly death and a shameful life. I I suppose they die young, their life with shameful homosexual whores. That's Elihu putting godlessness in its strongest terms. Look at how great their shame is. But what about the godly? Elihu just calls them those who suffer. God tests those he loves and chastens those he wants to turn from sin. That's why we keep reaching out to him. That's why we keep turning from our sin and praising him in good times as well as in bad times. There is some strange wordplay also in verse 15. Let me reread that one too. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Now the word delivers, um, yachaletz, 
sounds a lot like in their affliction, which is balachetz. I think the author of the poem is actually employing a rhyme, which is something we don't expect to hear in Hebrew poetry, although there is some in Isaiah, and as we've seen here and there in Job. Our lives are stained by our sins. We keep turning back to God, the one who delivers us in our repentance. We cry for help. We cry in our affliction, our balachetz, and he yalachetz, he delivers us. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. We end our time together this week with a song from Branch's band and their album, Hope for All. This is There Is a Higher Throne.
You have been listening to Canaanbaum Podcast, episode number 108. This episode was first shared in January of 2016. We would like to thank all the contributors for their message this week and the musical artists for sharing their songs. Visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com to subscribe, listen to old episodes, or find links to the artists featured on this show. Once again, my name is Philip Wells. It was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit Wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thank you for listening. Christ died on the cross, set me free by grace and through faith.